0: Anyhow, uh, welcome back, and uh, tonight we're going to uh, be looking at um, another passage or two in Romans, and then we may even get into the head-covering text in 1 Corinthians 11, which uh, I think several people had an interest in, some of whom aren't here tonight, oh well. Okay, so um, we're going to get started in Romans chapter 10, and... uh, I mean Romans. You could you could make a whole course out of it, right? Uh, difficult passages like Romans one through sixteen. I mean, chapter one through chapter sixteen, or something like that, because there's a lot of uh, interesting aspects to Romans. And uh, it, in some ways, once you get used to the flow of Romans and the, the kind of the argumentative style of Romans, it it becomes easier to read. But it. It's not the kind of uh, book where you just like you know, read a whole chapter and then come up, come away with one moral principle. I mean, you're going to get a whole lot more. It's like opening a fire hydrant and trying to drink from it. So Romans uh, Romans does require quite a high degree of reflection and um, at times intellectual rigor um, and. Uh, not not too much cross-referencing. Romans usually does a pretty good job into speaking for itself, but it does raise a lot of theological questions, right? So this is why we're we're looking at this um book tonight. Just hold on for a second, I wanna grab some markers. I think they're back here. So Romans chapter 10, uh, let's read the text and then we'll cross-reference it to Joel 2, which was also submitted. Uh, so we're going to start with Romans 10 and we're going to look at verse 13. And there it says uh, in the English Standard Version, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will will be saved. And then in Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 32 we read, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, um, by the way, like normally Mount Zion is Jerusalem, but there's actually a specific part of Jerusalem called Mount Zion. And that's where David's uh, palace was built. There shall be those... Who escape as the Lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls so uh, you tell me what what is um, a, what is it about this passage that is that is of interest to most people and what makes it difficult what do you think what makes this passage appropriate for a course on difficult passages of the Bible Yeah, Mark. this particular cross reference I know. Okay. 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 Oh. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, interesting.
0: Okay, I hadn't heard that one before. So the idea being that in uh you know, Joel 2 we're talking about Yahweh, but God's revelation of himself becomes more specific we believe through Christ in the New Testament. And the fact that he's also referred to as the Lord in Romans then uh sort of buttresses the idea that uh the Lord of the Old Testament is equivalent to the Christ of the New Testament. Okay, good. Um but what what other debate I've never heard that one before. Um that, that such a that such a thing ha- has happened, but that's pretty neat. Um, wh- what else does this sort of give like what other question does this raise? Is that how easy it is? Okay, is that how easy it is? Okay, just add to that a little bit. You're moving in the right direction. James Okay, very good. So it actually gives rise to a theological question. Uh and the the question could be framed in many ways, but let's just kind of put it this way. If God elects and God predestines, God is therefore sort of the initiator or the predeterminer, however you want to put it. Um how do you reconcile that with this these kinds of passages that that appear to put the onus wholly on you, it's sort of like almost like an equal playing field kind of an approach. And uh, therefore, if you just kind of call on the Lord, you'll be saved. I mean, that's what the text says. So really, the, the text, it's not that this text in and of itself is difficult to understand. There's not like complicated language in it or anything like that but what makes this text an interesting text is how how does this text fit with other texts in scripture which seem to put the onus all on god and this text seems to put the onus on you so it raises questions in the free will uh, predestination debates or the calvin arminian debate and so really it's it's um it's a theo- it just gives rise to a lot of theological uh, questions. So what we're going to do, as we often do, is we'll kind of explore the context a little bit more, uh, try to understand maybe the, the logical flow and where this fits uh, in the broader uh, argument of Romans chapter 10. Um, so we're, if you come back up, you don't have to go all the way back to the top of chapter 10, but if you come up to verse 5, um, let's just read some of this then. Uh, For Moses writes about the transgressions, uh, sorry, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, uh, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But... uh, What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe um, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So basically, just to sort of summarize that a little bit, um, you don't have to search around too much for the gospel. It's been proclaimed. It's there. It's in front of you. Uh, but the condition is the if uh, that you've got to you know buy into it you 've got to confess it you 've got to believe in it, and that if you do you 'll be saved and then it kind of tells us a little bit more about uh, taking the like the belief idea sort of balloon it out a little bit, tell you a little bit more about what that looks like, verse ten, for with the heart one believes and is justified and by the way, just to, cl- just to be clear here, unlike the West. In the culture we've been raised in, the word heart in the scriptures is more than an emotional word. It, is, it, involve, it can involve your will, um, your soul, your essence. It's not just like an emotional response. It can involve a measure of intellectual assent. So we just need to make that, uh, make that comment <clears throat> because it's, it, is, it is not less than, but it is more than an emotional uh, response when we speak of giving your heart to the Lord or trusting him with your heart. And with the mouth one confesses and is safe. For the scripture says, uh, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And I want you to pay c- careful attention to verse 12. This is very important. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Then we have the verse we've read. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. And let's then read through to verse 18. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? and how are they to hear without someone preaching so you see the logical sequence there and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all uh but they have not all obeyed the gospel for isaiah says lord who who has believed what he has heard from us so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of god but i ask have they not heard indeed they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. We'll just pause there. Let me make some comments. If you look at verses uh, 14 to 18, you look at the sequence, okay? To call, in order to call upon the Lord, you must believe, okay. Now, next step. To believe, you must hear, Next step, to hear, somebody must preach. So that's the sequence. However, look at the text again. But here's what happens not all accept. Look at the text again. Faith, look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of God. But I ask have they not heard? In other words, well, how come there's people who don't believe but have heard? And he says, oh, indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel is being proclaimed um, globally, uh, at least not necessarily in in the modern sense of like every single country at the time, but it's crossed over the borders of Israel. Okay, think Keep in mind, we're talking first century. For centuries, they saw themselves as God's chosen people, and more or less the message was confined to the borders of Israel or wherever the Jews happened to be. Something radically changes in the gospel. So now Gentiles, known as Greeks in the text, are hearing about Christ. So this is not to be read as, you know, at the time Romans 10 was written, like it was in North America, it was in Northern Europe, it was in Southern Africa. But the point being like in fulfillment or in reference to um, acts, events like Acts 2 where a whole bunch of ethnicities and languages are mentioned there in Acts 2. This gospel has, compared to what it had previously been limited to, gone global, right? Um, what, what's, what's the word they use when something uh, like an internet video or something goes Okay, viral. So the gospel's sort of gone viral, right? And so Paul's like answering a question that his audience is asking. Okay, if this is a sequence, if the sequence is call, which is preceded by uh, belief, hearing, someone preaching, why have all people not accepted it? Is it because they haven't heard it? He says, Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, not the ends of the world in the way that we think of it, but it's crossed over the borders of Palestine, and it's like all over the place now. But he says, Not all accept. So, where does faith come from then? Well, it comes through the word of Christ. Look at verse 19. But I asked, Did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Uh, With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, um, here... Here's what I want to take you back to and just focus your attention on in the text. And the the question I want us to sort of be thinking about for a moment is um, not so much, just for a moment, not so much how does this reconcile with the predestination text, but I want to ask you this very simple question. What is the purpose, the, the most basic purpose, of verse 13 in Romans chapter 10? What is the most basic purpose of it? Rather than just giving us a fact, what's the most basic purpose of it? I would suggest to you that the most basic purpose of this verse is found in the previous verse, verse 12. Verse 12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So it seems to me that the way verse 13 is functioning in the text is in fact not to be contradictory to election doctrines or predestination doctrines. The writer probably doesn't have that at the forefront of his mind, but he's communicating to potential Jewish readers this radical new idea that the gospel is no longer limited to Israel. So when he says, all who call, he's not meaning to say, it's all about you. You just make the decision, it's on you, and therefore I'm contradicting my election doctrine or predestination doctrine. He's trying to communicate this very basic and, frankly, at the time, radical idea. All means both Jew and Greek now have the opportunity... To call upon the name of the Lord. So this is not every Jew without distinction, every Greek without distinction, everybody on equal playing field, like everybody gets ten minutes with the Holy Spirit under the conviction of the Spirit, and they you know God is Pharisee Squares. He's not getting into that stuff here. He's just trying to make the point that the gospel is now available to both Jew and Gentile. Not everybody necessarily without distinction. But both Greek and Gentile now have access to the gospel. Now, I think that's the purpose of the 13th verse. But if we wanted to then set aside the immediate purpose of the verse and go back and ask the question, but does this in any way, shape, or form fly in the face of predestination doctrines or election doctrines? I would say the second from last verse we just read today answers that question quite clearly. So let's go back there. I think it's a second from last. Yeah, verse 20. Even of Israel, who for a period of time, more or less were the sole recipients of God's quote-unquote gospel. We'll just use New Testament language to refer to his revelation of himself in the Old Testament, good news. He says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And he's quoting here from who? He's quoting from Isaiah. A lot of people who don't really uh, maybe have a high regard for the authority of Scripture have this idea that Paul had a different gospel than anything that had been preached before it's maybe even contrary to Jesus's. Paul actually buttresses his arguments quite well using Old Testament texts. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Well, that's, that's very much in, in terms of concepts the same concepts that are described in election predestination doctrines. So as we look at this text, I actually see nothing in it that suggests, uh, number one, that this text is meant to mean uh, it's all on you, it's just your choice, your decision. In fact, I think verse 20 says the exact opposite. But that aside... The second comment I want to reinforce is I don't think the purpose of the text is to say it's on you or this is a different aspect of election. The all, all who call, means you don't just have to be of the physical line of Abraham now. But you can be of the physical line or the physical line of anybody. You can be a Gentile, a non-Jew, and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So here's a classic example of where we have to be careful not to ask the wrong question of the text we're looking at. And yet, by, if we just read this text by itself, I totally get why you would ask the question you've asked. But that's right. not actually the purpose of this text to raise that issue. Uh, It might be the purpose in part of verse 20, but it's not actually the purpose of this verse to raise that issue. It's the purpose to underscore the the inclusivity of the gospel going out to people of all languages and tribes and backgrounds. So it is the Lord's work then that in fact allows for true healing, is it not? If you read verse 20, is it not the Lord's work, whatever you want to call it, that... I mean, if you want to focus in on predestination, fine, or election, fine, or just grace, but it's the Lord's work that allows for true hearing, so even the ability to respond to the call, one might say, is gifted to us by by God. Now, I, I want to give you another diagram in a minute, but like have you heard me and does that make sense or do you have any other questions or comments you might want to make of this text Ken I'm reading today the standard too and when Paul says Isaiah I have been found by those who did not seek me I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me according to Isaiah 65 1 and 2 okay if you read Isaiah 65 1 and 2 it reads a little bit differently like in Okay, so um, basically, you just asked a question it would typically be answered in an entire semester seminary course on and um, I suppose I could I do address that in our Bible interpretation course the short answer and it's <clears throat> the problem is the short answer is going to sound like a weird answer, okay the long answer makes sense of this stuff, but the short answer sounds weird, but you're just going to have to Live with it for now. And that is that if you look at any of the Old Testament quotes that are found in the New Testament, and you do what you just did, good student, gold star, well done, <clears throat> you look back at the text from which they came. Okay, yeah, Almost all of them, are what we would call out of context or rewritten. Okay, almost all of them, in fact, to the point that if you were writing a paper in seminary today or at the University of Windsor and you quoted from a source in the way that a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, you would be thrown out of the class. Because our... Notions of something being in context are very clear, very defined. Um, <clears throat> in the New Testament era, there were, I'm familiar with probably 20 different ways in the New Testament that an Old Testament quote or idea can be used in New Testament scripture. All, all, again, almost all of which are completely foreign to our culture. And the reason for that, the simple reason for that, is that they were influenced by a very different philosophy of rhetoric. So rhetoric, I mean even the word rhetoric in our culture has a very precise meaning, but ancient rhetoric basically was the study of of argumentation and how you presented facts, and how you taught and transmitted truth. And um, there were actually about three different tiers of uh, what they call pedagogy, or three different tiers of teaching theory that you would go through as a student in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, if you were a scholar and wanted to be a teacher or whatnot. And one of the bands that you would go through, it might take you several years, I'm not sure, was the study of rhetoric. So it wasn't like in our schools where you go study biology, English, French, math, you know, all these little subjects. You just study rhetoric. And it was all about argument, argumentation and styles of argumentation and different ways to build a case and create an argument and uh, make a point or illustrate a point or challenge an idea. And just to give you one example, uh, in ancient rhetoric, you were allowed to, for instance, quote from an ancient source. And, and under, in, under certain laws and rules, that quote could be valid if you simply use the language that was used in the ancient quote. You didn't even you didn't have to consider the context of it. So the study of the, old te- the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament does require a fair bit of teaching on ancient uh, rhetoric, how they were allowed to use quotes, how they were allowed to rework quotes um, in the New testament, and so here we don 't have a one for one in the way that we would think it would be appropriate, but it was suitable to paul like it was it was allowable it was within the boundaries of rhetorical principles at the time to use isaiah 's quote to build his argument that way. And he would have known, known that, and so would his readers. I would say if you have an interest in this, and you want the finest example of this in the New Testament, you should really thoroughly study the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, many people believe, is written by somebody who was probably like what we would call a PhD level in ancient rhetoric. His argumentative forms and styles are actually really fascinating, even even if you weren't a Christian. And you just wanted to study a really cool piece of literature that demonstrates first century rhetorical style. Hebrews is just incredible. And I've had the opportunity to teach line by line through Hebrews several times. And it just fascinates me every time I do that. I mean, there's a lot there you forget more than you remember, of course. But the way he he uses Old Testament scripture... uh, Again, just our, our Western philosophy seems totally out of context, but as you as you read it and reread it, you start to get a feel for his argumentation. It's sort of like, okay, yeah, I, this makes sense. I mean, I got to kind of readjust my worldview a little bit here and my perceptions of how this all works, but um, that's what's going on in the text, and you're going to find that time and time again. It's probably helpful for us just to even have this brief conversation about it tonight because atheists and People like to challenge your faith will ask you questions like that. So even if you can't always like answer, well, why is this specific quote being used this way when it's an original context, that's not really what it meant, um, at least you can say, hey, you know, there's some sort of rhetorical thing going on here that was permissible in the ancient world that has just been lost to us. We just don't argue that way anymore. Um, our argumentative forms, by the way, are far more Recent creations, I sort of referenced this on Sunday, maybe, or a couple Sundays back. Um, we have no idea how much we've been influenced by the rationalism of the Enlightenment. It's just unbelievable. I did a degree, um, I did an advanced degree on preaching theory several years ago, and I chose to write my uh, my thesis on um, the how how evangelicals have used propositional language in sermons, sometimes to preach texts that aren't propositional in nature, because we just think that's the right thing to do. Like you take a narrative, you've got to turn it into a proposition. And if you can turn it into a proposition, it must be more true, right? Because we tend to express doctrine and propositions. We don't feel as comfortable expressing doctrine in images or metaphor or story and just letting the story make the point, even though the biblical writers felt quite comfortable with that. But we like to sort of digest it down into propositions, which I don't think is a bad move in and of itself if you understand that most Western people think in propositions. But uh, what I would maybe, what I was reacting to in my thesis is the modern evangelical notion that something is more true if it's propositional than if it's non-propositional and and if if you can distill a you know you could let me just give you an example of this if this isn't clear if we went to the book of genesis and we just read about uh joseph and all the chapters on joseph and we're like okay joseph was raised by jacob and he had the fancy coat, and his brothers didn't like him. And um, you know, they sold him to their cousins, and they took him down to Egypt, and on and on and on. You start moving through the passage. <clears throat> Very rarely in the passage does the writer say, "Hey, everybody, this is what this means. You should be nice to your brothers." Proposition. Um. You shouldn't uh, attack God's choice servants, which would be a proposition. It doesn't. Doesn't say anything about that. It just tells the story. And you kind of get it, like you, you're left with an impression, like you know what the account is intending to communicate, but a preacher doesn't need to necessarily get up and say, Okay, just in case you're all stupid and you don't understand the story, this is what this means. I'm going to give you three propositional points to tell you what this means, right? The the narrative just stands on its own two feet and accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish as a narrative. Just like we sing songs, which are largely non-propositional, and they just wash over us, and they do something in us, they serve a purpose to draw our attention to God and to exalt God. But I don't need to get up after and say, okay, we just sang three songs, let me give you three lessons we can learn from each one, otherwise they're not valuable to us. Okay? Following me? But the Enlightenment and the rationalism of the Enlightenment era, this is like post-Reformation, which gave rise to science and rational thought and the belief that only that which is true can be figured out in a test tube or through an equation or through the rational processes of Western logic, trickled into the church. And now we have a whole several generations of evangelicals that would look at their doctrinal statements or creeds, and in their mind, that statement is more true than a biblical narrative that just allowed to stand on its own two feet. And I think that's a crying shame because God himself, in his revelation of himself to us, at times does speak to us in propositions. There's all kinds of propositions in the Bible. But it's actually a minority body of literature to find propositional language in the Bible, than to find apocalyptic, which is not propositional, than to find narrative, which is not propositional, than to find proverb, which is not propositional, than to find psalm, that is not propositional. Um, prophecy is kind of a mix of proposition and woe and lament and song and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, <clears throat> what, the whole the whole thing that I that I you know, concluded as a result of my studies is that as a preacher, as I seek to communicate truth, I don't just have to resort to like three points in a poem on every text. Like sometimes uh, my intention is just to preach in such a way that people are washed over with mystery and curiosity or to preach in such a way that people are left with an impression that serves the purposes of the text, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, give them something that's easy to write down as a memorable quote in the back leaf of their Bible. Um, And I'll just make one further comment. This is totally off track, but I'm kind of enjoying it. So um, if, if all truth is, in fact, merely propositional, then science wins. And we have no arguments to present Because there are many things in Scripture that are a mystery. Now, by that, I don't mean confusing. And by that, I don't mean meant to breed ignorance. But they're a mystery in the sense that they're non-propositional. They're encountered through a different part of your humanity. Um, It may be... um, like an impression of God's movement or presence in your life. I don't know how to communicate that propositionally, really. Uh, It might be a profound awareness of the divine who has exposed himself to you and revealed himself to you. Your friend's like, well, prove it. Well, right there, what you're saying is that I need to prove something that is by nature non-propositional in my experience of it, I need to like somehow translate it into a proposition for you to believe it. I can't because it's not propositional in nature. Like I can't, I can't really describe to you in propositions my relationship with Jesus. I, I really can't. Um, an atheist comes to me and says, "You know, prove to me that there's a God." Well, I know what you're asking. You're you're asking for like evidence that's scientific and enlightenment-like and rational and propositions. But the problem is. You, you're ask, actually asking me a bad question because you've been so influenced by the Enlightenment, you, you've, you've been taught and you assume that that which is true is always deductive. It's propositional. But I actually don't believe that's true. And I think there's another way for me to experience truth outside of deductive logic and proposition. So, you're taking this category of inquiry, namely deductive logic and propositional discovery, and you're asking me to describe something that's by definition like in a different category of my life. But if you don't think through that, you're going to be like, I can't describe it propositionally. It must not be true. Maybe I should become an atheist. And I, I wonder how many Christians' lives have been shipwrecked on the rocks of apostasy. Because they, in fact, think that only that which is true should be able to be run through the grid of rational enlightenment logic with no awareness of even where that worldview came from, which didn't exist before the 1500s. And they just walk away from it all. Yet you know, somehow Christians, for centuries, got away with believing in God and. Having profound experiences with God without the help of rationalism and enlightenment. So I'm not saying rationalism and the Enlightenment is a bad thing. I think it serves a purpose, but it needs boundaries put on it. It needs to be applied to uh, categories of inquiry that suit it, and spiritual matters don't always suit it. An encounter with God doesn't. It's not really. It's not in the same category as trying to figure out um you know mathematical equations or something like that. See? So yeah. Don? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. It's not like disjointed. Um, I, I, maybe I understood your question as in reference to the fact that the words are actually different. Like there's a, a bit of a rewording going on, even though on a conceptual level, yeah, there's a conceptual tie-in between Isaiah and Romans, but some of the words are actually a little bit different.
1: The initiators.
2: initiators. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, here's what I find. Let me just put this up
1: here. Right.
0: Yeah. um, Calvinists typically talk about irresistible grace. So they would look at texts like that and say um, the answer to that is on the level of degrees of resistance. So let's say, not to be blasphemous, but I'm the Holy Spirit, and Steve in front of me is a reprobate, total pagan dirtbag or a spiritual rebel, right? Um, okay, so if I'm like, let's say, eight feet back and my call is uh, a ge- kind of a general call, hey, I exist, Steve, okay? And maybe on that level he can resist it, you know, because all humanity on a certain level is aware of the presence of God if they just open their eyes. Maybe um, I step a little closer, I allow suffering in Steve's life and I'm supposed to try to shake him up a little bit, right? And one could say that's a maybe a little bit more of a personal call. But the most forceful kind of call is, okay, now that I come upon him in power, I convict him of his sin, I expose him to the gospel. A Calvinist would say that act is irresistible. That man will get saved when God's power comes upon him and grace comes upon him in the most personal pointed way that's irresistible grace in the salvation moment but there's a there's different ways that God works with people right so i think we see that in scripture i mean there's a general sense in which God just kind of over here you know and then there's events that take place where he may be bringing them about to kind of get our attention. And then there's like the, he's all over us. That's irresistible. Um, I just wanted to point this out because I just just think it's really helpful. So um, the New Testament uses very specific language like predestines and election, right? And this is New Testament. Believers read this and they're like, what? Okay, they're looking at these words <clears throat> because they're like categorical words. What in the world? But what I find strange about that response to those words is this, that in the old covenant era, okay, we have a planet that is still in existence revolving around the sun. And we have this little nation along the coast of the Mediterranean that every story, every encounter from, what, Genesis 11 onwards is focused, not only almost, I'll put almost, okay, almost exclusively on them as recipients of God's grace and goodness and blessings and salvation. And everybody else in this category is damned. So I think to myself, okay, I didn't need to wait to read the New Testament if I actually had any common sense about me to see... In the Old Testament, that yeah, you, know, you may not be familiar with the specific word predestines or elects, but obviously he's doing that. It's like everyone else is going to hell. Wipe out the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Egyptians. They're all gone. It's just this people, and not even all of them. There's a remnant. But the point being is the the Old Testament illustrates what is described in more didactic language in the New Testament. So it just boggles my mind that people find the doctrine of election and predestination almost like a surprise when they've read the New Testament if they've ever read even one book of the Old Testament. Like, what do you think is going on in the Old Testament with the Canaanite genocide? Like, what is going on with uh, Joshua attacking them all? Don't, you don't see Joshua, anybody... Hey, uh, let me just read a few things for you, give you an opportunity to... uh, Can I use this? Okay. Oh, okay, thanks. Let me preach to you and like read to you and give you an opportunity to repent because our God is fair. Everybody ready? No, they don't even even ask. They just go in and start killing them all. And uh, either God is impotent or he's not working with these people on the side because there's, there's, they're not godless pe- or godly people. So th- don't be surprised when you're reading election texts in the New Testament because you've just seen it all illustrated um, through the Old. This, to me, is the harmony of Scripture. It's just that the Old Testament is illustrating something that happens to be, be um, I guess, put into more like bullet point forms in the New Testament to make clear what you may not have... For whatever reason, seen in the old covenant.
1: Okay,
0: if if you have a big problem with the fairness of God, as we often define fairness, like yeah, you get a jelly bean and you get a jelly bean, um, then you're gonna have a major problem, like major problem reading everything from Genesis 11 to the end of Malachi. You have like a major problem with it. Okay? I mean, God is fair, but it's just a different. Way of thinking about fairness than we often think of it. Okay, so uh, this was not the illustration I wanted to show you, though. This is the one I wanted to show you, only because uh, this illustration—I mean, I've reworked it a little bit—but this basic illustration was ex- given to me years ago by a teacher, and I'm just like, okay, this—the lights just started turning on. Okay, like this just to me, it makes sense of a lot of these kinds of questions about how God works and all this kind of stuff. And it's just very simple. It, I just call it the line. It's a very simple drawing. There's the drawing. Well, there's a little more to it than that. but uh, So this is the line. <clears throat> and um, below the line is everything we know, you and I, planet Earth, the solar system, We'll just illustrate it in the form of a globe with us standing on it. So this is everything in creation, okay? This is like uh, all people, the universe, everything we know about science, everything we know about math, everything we could know about science, could know about math, we've not yet discovered. Um, Everything we know about Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, like all human knowledge, it's everything below the line. Um, God, we'll just use the, like the old diagram of the triangle, the Trinity, God is above the line and God, uh, his, his knowledge is infinite. What's the sign for infinity? Is it sideways or up and down? I always forget. Sideways. Okay. So something like this, right? So above the line, just picture God. Okay. God is God. He's there. He knows everything, like he knows everything we, we know. He knows everything we potentially will know, uh, or so, sorry, we will know. He knows everything we potentially could know, and like infinite amount beyond that, right? So I'm just going to ask you a simple question. How much, and I know this doesn't make sense mathematically because infinity can't be divided into parts. I get it. But how much, if we could maybe just ask the question, how much of God's infinite knowledge above the line has been revealed to us? Like if you had to put a percentage on it or something. I know you can't put a percentage on infinity, but try. So think of everything that God knows. How much... <clears throat> of what God knows, do we know? I could be very, very specific. Let's just, everything below the line, let's just boil it down to one one aspect of that. The Bible. How much of God's infinite knowledge is in the Bible? We think, well, there's a lot in there. It's just a very little bit. Just a very little bit. So I'm just going to kind of be a little arrogant on all of our behalves. And I'm going to draw some big old arrows like this. And I'll put like 1% at the bottom. Again, we don't know 1%. We'll just say we do. Uh, We know very, very little of everything God knows in His infinite plan and knowledge. Well, within that 1% and within the Bible we are told things like God elects, God predestines. All of a sudden, we're like, we want to know everything else connected to it. Like we want access to your infinite knowledge. Why, when, where, who, why would you do it? Why do you do it? Who are the elect, who are the predestined? Uh, We want you to connect all the dots for us. We're not into mystery. We want it all figured out. Put it in par- propositions for us. Like, make it all make sense. And this is how a lot of people respond to biblical revelation. It's like we are not content with what we have. We want to ask like 100,000 other spin off questions. And God's just like, no, you're not. You're not getting it. See? So I'm quite comfortable with preaching and teaching the 1% of what I do know. And I don't need to, and nor should you feel that you need to ask the questions that God has not yet chosen to reveal to us or may never reveal to us. When I was a kid, I used to be told, like, when you get to heaven, you can ask him all the questions you want. Like, I kind of doubt it's going to work that way. I probably won't be all that interested in the kind of questions that I'm now asking. And uh, even through all of eternity, if I kept asking one question every minute, I still will never get to infinity. And third, even in my glorified state, my little peewee brain doesn't have the capacity to digest what God knows. So it's just never going to happen, right? But if you like to think that because it's a quaint thought, your granny told you that, that's fine. I'm just not really sure that's how it's going to work. I think gonna just, we're going to be washed over with his presence. We're going to be satisfied with that. And we're going to be satisfied with who he has made us or remade us to be. And it's going to be awesome from there forward. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. the people talking Jesus a few more miracles and if you, like,
0: year, uh, if they did,
2: they
0: still oh, yeah. Get it. yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean would like if Jesus so Jesus was on earth for thirty three years, preach for three. Why not six? Why not thirty? Says he loved the whole world. Like, couldn't he have like delayed the crucifixion until the age of sixty-three? Would it have really made that big of a difference? Like, we would have had maybe, you know, ten times the Bible. But um, God has said what He needed to say, and what He has said is sufficient for all people, all cultures, all times, all circumstances. It's not wrong to add human wisdom to it, as long as it's not, as long as it's like a footnote to God's. Um, But we just know very little bit about uh, God, and uh, and we just kind of need to be okay with that. Um, I told you about the pale blue dot, right? Did anybody look that up? Okay, it's pretty cool, eh? We're just little, a little. It's it's tiny is not even the right word for it. Like we're just a little little tiny, little itsy-bitsy thing in space. And uh, somehow God loves us and has communicated a body of knowledge to us. So I just read in my Bible that God elects, God predestines. It makes me really curious how that all works. And I I can do my best to sort through the text, but sometimes I'm just going to hit a dead-end street. It's like, "Eh." that's all the information you're going to get. You just need to be okay with it. Okay? So, a related topic then, which hopefully this line will help us with, is Romans 11. And uh, verse 2. All right. Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then verses 7 to 10. What then? Uh, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, uh, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So the question that was submitted by the student was, um, is this talking about the foreknowledge of Israel? And uh, does this doctrine support election? And how does this apply to Gentiles? So the simple answer is yes. Uh, it does, I mean, the, 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 the language of the text is speaking of Israel, and um, uh, God's foreknowledge of Israel is in mind here and is the basis, in fact, in the context for why God has not rejected them totally. Totally. And Paul, as a Jew, uses himself as an example of the fact. Clearly, God has not rejected Israel totally because here I am, right? I'm a Jew, and I believe in Jesus. So God has not rejected us totally, <coughs> or the Jews totally. But the context also helps to see that foreknowledge is not uh, merely knowing them in advance. Like You break the word down, for. Knowledge. Like, oh, it means knowing in advance. Well, yeah, there's that aspect to it. But what kind of knowing in advance? Um, Real quick, sometimes when we read English words, and I'm sure this is the case, and I mean, you speak Spanish, probably the same in Spanish and other languages. We think the meaning of the word is described, especially if it's like a compound word, it's described just by knowing the definitions of the compound words. And the illustration I always give is like a cattail. It just doesn't work that way. A cattail could be something sticking off the back of a feline that lives at your house. In that sense, it would be very literal. But it could be a bulrush or a whip. So the the root of a word doesn't necessarily tell you everything there is to know about the word. And a lot of people read foreknowledge like, oh, that just means God knew in advance who and then they add, who would be saved, and then orchestrated the events to sort of make it happen. It's just not I don't know of any passage in the Bible where the word foreknowledge is used where the context actually would allow for that weak of a definition. But rather, I would suggest just something like this. You don't have to go with this exact one, but it's more like God's setting his sights on them to be his chosen children in advance. It's more of that kind of a thing. God's setting his sights on them. He knows them in an intimate way rather than he just knows that in the right situation, the right environment, they're going to be saved. I remember when I was, I don't know, 15 or something. My sister used to date all these crazy guys, and uh, once in a while they would bring over their friends. And uh, this one guy was very, he was actually a believer, but he was very Arminian. He was a new believer, and he would always argue this point with me, right? That foreknowledge is like God looks down the tunnel of time, and he's like, Yeah, I can see Jordan's going to trust me, so. I'm now going to make sure he kind of does. And um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure why God would even have to be involved in that process if Jordan, given the right circumstances, is going to trust him anyway. But that was his knowledge, that was his understanding. And I think I'd read enough scripture, maybe not that much, but I think I'd read enough scripture, no, it just didn't sit right. So I would always argue the opposite side, and I still argue it. That it's more like <clears throat> the God looks down the tunnel of time and just sets his affections on jordan like knows him in an intimate way and god is the one that orchestrates the events to bring about his conversion but jordan's like passive in the process that takes place before the creation of the world i mean he he becomes active in space and time but god's foreknowledge is not like he's looking for all the good ones Because I don't don't, don't know how that could even be the case when the Bible, multiple times, like nobody seeks me, we're all sinful. Like, yeah, he may not be like a serial killer, but how do you describe the fact that God saved a few serial killers through time too? So what, if God, it can't be that God picks all the good ones because it's not just the good ones that trust him. In fact, many of the good ones don't. Um, and what do you do with the doctrine of total depravity and sin and all that? I, I, just, I just don't know how that would work. So in this context, uh, I would define it as the setting of God's sights on his people. So even within Israel, <clears throat> less people think or thought that they were like automatically part of the elect because they were Jews, kind of like a lot of Christians today. They're out, let's defend Israel. They're all God's chosen people. No, they're not. It was never the case, and it isn't the case now. Some are, some aren't. Not all of Israel was of Israel. Meaning that, yeah, God was working with them as a chosen race, but there were many people in Israel that were not part of the remnant, that were unbelievers, unbelievers that ran off on God. You can't just look at a guy, oh, you got Jewish blood in your body. You're God's chosen people. Maybe you're not part of the remnant. The ethnic remnant, right? Maybe you're one of the ones that, just like in the old times, fell away, will continue to fall away. <clears throat> so look at verses 4 to 7 then. Um, it says, uh, but what is God's reply to him? Uh, to the prophet, who's like, you know, these people are basically, they're a bunch of morons, Lord. Um. like they they seek my life. They killed the prophets. They demolished the altars. I'm the only guy left, <clears> he <throat> says. What are you going to do about it? Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? Here's God's reply. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so too, okay, this is Old Testament, so too at the present time, There is a remnant chosen by grace. He's still speaking about Israel. But if it is by grace, it's no longer in the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So it's not even like the good guys necessarily. I mean, in some ways it is. It's the guys who have bowed to Baal, but at the same time, it's it's grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? And there's sort of like the rhetorical, uh, well, no, not really, but yeah, kind of, because the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it was written, God gave a spirit of stupor eyes that could would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And then he quotes David, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution, and so forth. Um, so as we're looking at this text then, Uh, Is it speaking about the foreknowledge of Israel? Yes. Does it support the doctrine of Israel? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Because God's in the process of choosing and dealing with a remnant, not all. And so this idea then reflects the essence. This is just an aside. It's not brought up immediately in this text. But this idea reflects the essence of God's Choice of the Gentiles too. So when you ask the question, does it apply to the Gentiles? I say I would say yes. It, God's dealings with Israel are actually a lot alike God's dealings with the Gentiles, and that there's a remnant among them that He chooses to work with by grace, not by works. So even if you're the elect, like you can't pat yourself in the back, right? You, like you get like to take zero credit for it. Any questions about that or comments or whatever? Well, through the Okay, so that's you've made a true statement, so I, like are you asking me a question or No, but
2: I am saying that, you know, through the history of the old Testament, that it's been that God he got mad at someone that he was gonna destroy everybody. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. somebody
0: proceeded, and said, an Okay, uh, you know <coughs> Yes yeah, so we have a we have a, a picture of God who's working within the confines and restraints of space and time and decisions and the sequence of events and whatnot. And many times, just like when God is referred to like a hen, um, the way we would understand those texts is sometimes God uses man-like language and applies those characteristics to God. But we, we we would not be able to truly affirm the total sovereignty of God and say that's, in the most literal way, how it works. That God didn't literally change his mind. God knew that people would cry out to him and that he would respond to them. And the events came about in such a way that that happened. I don't know how else we could explain it otherwise. Um, So, um, yeah, we have God portrayed in the text as changing his mind. I mean, some people think that means the future is... I, mean, I don't know if you know this, but there, there are several people alive and well on planet Earth today who would still call themselves evangelicals that teach actively and vigorously that God does not know the future, that the future is not open to God, or a slightly softened version of that, that God chooses not to know the future. And the label for that is Open God Theism, a man by the name of Gregory Boyd. Minnesota is a big advocate of that. And uh, his proof texts would be like the ones you've referenced. And I would just say, okay, no, I would say there's other plausible explanations to that. God adopts human language, allows it to be applied to himself, one of which is lineal thinking, decision-making. I mean, it does communicate to us. God answers prayer and all that kind of thing too. But... Uh, we can't use texts like that to somehow violate uh, the, the clarity of Scripture in terms of the pure knowledge of God from beginning to end and how everything's going to happen from beginning to end.
1: Yeah.
2: Could it just be that you know, God wanted to have us understand <coughs> how good He is trying to teach us a lesson? I think so. For us to mm-hmm. appreciate His mm-hmm. compassion. Yes. The Yeah,
0: yeah. I think on a devotional level, like the level of like the takeaways, that would be a good one. Another would be, you know, do pray to God, do express your concerns to God. You know, you can sort of uh, um, the people of God can sort of move God along through their prayers for healing or deliverance or that kind of thing. All, right? Case, yeah.
2: Like Yes. We can take it all in Yeah. <clears throat> yes. us
1: along and let yep. us believe so that we can be stronger in
0: our Yeah, life. of course. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I th- I th- not only do I have no problem with it, I, I would affirm that wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well let's uh take our break and uh tonight, man, we just really you just oh, really outdid yourselves. So last night we had like the ten Ten timbits to share. I felt like we were at like the feeding of the five thousand or something. <clears throat> but you were so gracious. There was like three left or something. Right? But tonight we got a lot of food back there, so enjoy. Okay. All right. Um, we're going to look at one more passage in Romans eleven. It relates to branches and vine- or branches being grafted and whatnot. It's verses nineteen to twenty-two. I'll read it for you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. I actually underline that in my Bible. I think that's important. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So um, the question is, what, what does Paul mean when he talks about severity towards those who have fallen? And I'll just answer that one. That would be the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Either in the form of an immediate wrath that God would dispense to a believer just to sort of bring them back in line or more like the damnable kind of God's wrath where he might dispense to a body of people who have you know, generationally or whatnot rejected him like with the Jews and then verse. the next question is and, uh, how are we to continue in his kindness and what does it mean to be cut off from the branch so verse 17 then uh, the broken branches are intended to be understood as um, the Jews who have rejected God through their transgressions, and so if if you picture, you know, God is like a tree, and you're sort of connected to him. K- sorry, the relationship's done; they're broken off. But interestingly, um, he he speaks of the Gentiles are being grafted in. It's like it's not quite as natural as the original branches because we know that God's original design was to bring the descendants of Abraham to faith. And he's working with them. So they're more like the original true branches. But we get to participate in life with God by being grafted in. But he does warn, verses 18 to 23, Look at verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Verse 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild vine and grafted, sorry, if you were cut off, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So God just sort of reminds even the church that he can break them off if they persist in disbelief, but there is this sense uh, in the text that God is going to graft them back in, and I mean, by itself, this text doesn't tell you a lot, but if you kind of take it into consideration with the rest of Scripture... I, I believe there's evidence in the Scripture for a, a, a grafting back in of Israel uh, in the future, the eschatological realm, uh, when they, um, you know, during the tri- well, I believe it would be the tribulation period when God would would bring uh, a great number of Jews back to Himself. So, image is a tree; the Jews are connected to it. They transgress; they're snapped off. The wild olive branches that the Gentiles are grafted in. We participate in it. But he's like, Yeah, but I could snap you off too if you continue in disbelief. But in the future, I'm going to graft back in my true branches. So then the question in the center is how are we to continue in his kindness? Well, this is not like, uh, this is not to be understood as like um, being afraid of losing God's favor because of a minor mess up. But it's about continuing in transgressions and disbelief like the Jews did. So you don't need to concern yourself with one-off sins any more than God was apt to like, chastise his people en masse for one-off sins. But when they continued in unbelief, when they, generationally they, they started to be marked by anything other than godliness. yeah, God's like, okay, we've got a big problem here. So that's the kind of disbelief we need to concern ourselves with in terms of being uh, removed from the true vine or the true tree now, the final passage we're going to look at tonight is one that I think several have been looking forward to. It's first corinthians eleven two to ten <coughs> um I'll read the passage for you, and then we'll try to work through it a little bit. Now, I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain their traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should uh, cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but uh, woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. By the way, the word for wife here is the same word for woman. So there's an interpretive decision needs to be made by the translator as to wh- where in the text do I write in woman and where do I write in wife. And commentators differ then on um, where certain aspects of this text apply generically to women and where other aspects of the text be apply specifically to women who happen to also be wives, but nevertheless. Uh, that is why uh, verse 10, I think, is where I left off. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, uh, it is the Lord. uh, uh, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman, for woman was made of man, so man was not born of woman. So we'll just kind of stop there for a minute. Actually, no, let's go right, right through to verse 16. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Uh, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For her hair is given for to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Ah, we're out of time. We're going to wind up now. <laughs> okay. So um, (laughs) let me just make a preliminary comment, like a pastoral kind of comment, and say that um, obviously uh, we have people in this room, myself included, that come from traditions that are other than what is normally practiced in this church, Um, meaning that some of us come from traditions where women did cover their heads. In fact, I'm just curious. Could you put up your hand? I'll put my hand up. How many of you come from churches where... Okay. And these are different kinds of churches, by the way. So we have apostolic, brethren. What, what was yours? What would yours be called, Quiddita? Church of God. Um, would they cover their heads?
2: No, no. Before, yeah. Before.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So, and for others, it's like, I I've never seen that. I think it's weird, right? So, um, I. This issue is. I mean, I know you, and you know me. This is not about. This is not an authority of Scripture issue. This is not like we don't we don't like First Corinthians eleven, or we're just like conveniently bypassing it. Um, it is. It does genuinely boil down to a question of uh, how is the principle, which in fact um, most evangelicals agree across the board, what the principle of the text is. They just don't agree on the, pra- the practical application of it as to whether it's the practical application, the principle is trans-culture, transcultural or limited to a particular culture. And that really is what it boils down to. So you don't, you don't want to say to someone who practices this like you're out of date. And nor do you want to say to someone that doesn't practice it, well, you obviously don't believe in the authority of Scripture because that's just simply not true. Um, if the Scripture tells our women to cover their heads, they better go get a veil now, right? Because that's what, if that's what the text says, that's what the text says. So let's, let's work through it and try to understand then what, what might be going on here. So we're going to start, kind of go through it a little bit sequentially. So verse 3, we have the sequence of headship lined up. Um, now, notice just before that, there's this debatable term, maintain their traditions. How much of what Paul said to the church was more like the traditions and how much was of it was directly from God? Now, if you say, well, everything Paul said was directly from God, well, you're going to find out otherwise when I preach 1 Corinthians 7 on Sunday because Paul specifically says in the text... Um, now, this is not I, but the Lord, which implies maybe some of the material he just gave before that was more like his opinion on like celibacy and that kind of thing, right? He was promoting celibacy, but he's, it's kind of my opinion on it. But this is from the Lord. So there's some debates there. You look at that word. You look at uh, verse 16. I don't know if such prac, depending on how you interpret, if anyone is inclined to be contentious about what he's just said, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God, meaning that he might be saying there's actually no universal consensus on this in the early church. I'm just telling you what I think needs to be practiced here. And um, also in verse 13, when it says, judge for yourselves, is it proper? There's at least three references in the text that may, or admittedly may not, but may be meant to communicate that I'm telling you this, but it's sort of a matter of conscience for you to respond to it. Okay? So that, we just need to kind of note that in the text, that that's a possibility. But when you come to verse (coughs) 3, it seems fairly clear because he's sort of uh, representing to them uh, Genesis, uh, the, the, the language and hierarchy that's promoted in Genesis, that. This is more like transcultural stuff. So I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. (coughs) That doesn't vary from culture to culture. The head of a wife is her husband. That doesn't vary from culture to culture. The head of Christ is God. That doesn't vary from culture to culture. If the middle phrase, the head of every woman is her husband, is cultural, it would be kind of weird that it would be Surrounded on both sides by something that is not cultural. It's theological. So I, I think it's hard to interpret the middle phrase as anything other than theological as well, especially because it's from Genesis. It's like transcultural. It's not about Corinth or Asia or Ephesus or Palestine or Northern Africa or whatever. It's it's just kind of back to like the creation event itself. Now, I will say that some have tried to take the word headship here, the word head, and suggest that this Greek word kephale means source, to soften the word. And for, for quite a while it was popular for um, egalitarians who didn't believe that there were differences between the genders in terms of hierarchy to say, well, no, the word means source, like meaning that... Um, uh, you know, the source of every man is Christ. The source of a wife is her husband. The, s- the source of Christ is God. But um, linguistical research has pretty much ruled that out, that it doesn't mean source, it means head. Okay? Um, verse 4, we get into the head covering component. So well, I just want to share with you some some uh, research that we have at our disposal that may, may suggest that the application of headship, the way that's expressed in the church, um, may allow for some varied approaches because it seems there are some things taking place in Corinth that gave rise to this stuff. So, if you're just like a, if you're just a, <coughs> a new Christian and you're starting to read in Genesis and you're reading through the Bible from one end to the other, and let's say you didn't have this specific teaching. I don't think it would cross your mind that the way for a woman to express headship would be to do with the length of hair. I don't think, unless your culture told you otherwise, that you would say, "Well, oh, a guy with long hair is somehow contrary to nature." I don't think that you would say, "Oh, if a man prays with his head covered, that uh, you know it's somehow a damnable act," um, especially when the Old Testament guys were praying with their heads covered. Um, so Paul's arguments, it would appear, are less like intuitive, like everybody should know this, and there's probably something going on in Corinth that gave rise to these teachings, and I'm going to share some things with you that I think make that clear. Number one, uh, we know from statue art and inscriptions that there was a lot of cult, uh, cult worship in Corinth, uh, at the time, and that the depictions of men in those cultic worship settings almost without exception were wearing were elite men wearing head coverings okay. and various writings have suggested to us that the reason in fact for uh it tended to be the upper crust that participated in the the you know the the popular religions um it might sound kind of odd, but the, the the reason why guys would cover their heads with capes in these rituals is because they wanted to partially muffle out the sound of the animals that were being sacrificed around them. Because frankly, it was kind of gross. It was just over the top. So, um, we have Im- images and statuettes and statues and carvings illustrating that uh, in a pretty high in pretty high volume that. It was a practice in Corinth for men to, in fact, cover their heads in worship when they were participating in these pagan cults. And uh, as a result of that, as some of these Roman elite were converted to Christianity, one line of argument is that Paul was very concerned that the church did not become hierarchical. And if you came into the church and you continued to worship the living Christ the way you worshipped pagan deities, you caped yourself, that that would communicate to everyone there that you are of an elite status, culture, a class in the church. And that may lead to all sorts of problems where there's sort of a a hierarchy of uh, the rich and the poor. The rich are the ones clearly that, you know, they cape their heads because... um, they are uh, people from the elite class, or used to be worshiping, uh, you know, various satanic religions in a certain way. I mean, it's not uncommon. We all know this that our worship forms, pretty much in all, um, um, from the beginning of Christianity till now, our worship forms are not necessarily Christian. Okay, they're not unChristian necessarily, but like building a building and setting up chairs in rows, it's, that's a form of worship, but it's not like defined for us in Scripture. It's it's based on practicalities. It's based upon what we see in other religions and so forth, right? So uh, it may be that um, Paul was very concerned about that, and therefore he forbade men from covering their heads in worship. At the same time, the question then is, well, why, why would uh, women who are involved in worship, be asked to cover their heads. Like, why, how, how might that tie into culture? I'll share with you three things. Number one, elite women wore elaborate hairstyles. You could tell the cultural status of a person pretty much based on their hairstyle. So the richer you are, you would braid it up. Multiple braids. You probably see this on like old coins from that era. Multiple braids brought to the top. Average women couldn't afford that. They wouldn't do their hair that way. And um, Paul was likely warning, uh, asking women to cover their heads, again, perhaps for the same purpose that he was asking the Christian men to uncover their heads, because he wanted to promote equality of classes among worshiping Christians. And he didn't want your hair to be seen because it would tip off the other worshippers as to your financial status and culture. That's a possibility. Secondly, best as we can tell, a lot of people pass this myth around that uh, the prostitutes of Corinth shaved their heads. No, they did not. The truth of the matter is women that were caught in adultery had their heads shaved. Uh, as a punishment, including prostitutes. So if you saw prostitutes with their heads shaved, it's not because that was the style that they would wear to identify themselves as prostitutes. But it was a sign of shame. Uh, It also would have shamed their husbands if they happened to be married women that are committing adulterous acts. And this would answer the question as to why short hair is considered shameful because it would automatically be concluded by the culture, if you have short hair... You obviously were committed and caught in an act of adultery. And further to that, why would it shame your husband? It shames your husband because it shows that he has no headship, no kephalae over you. And then, <clears throat> finally then, verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her her hair, or shave her head, let her cover her head. Finally, then the idea being, uh, since shaved heads were either associated with, since shaved heads were associated with adultery, and fanciful hairdos were associated with class, um, he uh, out of this uh, out of this line of argument, it shames her husband uh, if she neither covers nor shaves her head. So on both accounts it's sort of like damned if you do damned if you don't. If you're a rich woman you have braided hair, it's going to cause a problem and it's going to shame your husband showing he doesn't have spiritual headship over you because you're flaunting yourself. And if you have short hair, it's going to shame him because that means you're an adulterer. So these are the basic arguments that are put forward that would say okay Uh, We're not debating headship. Um, We're not debating the principles of the text. Uh, We're not debating how the fact that men and women participate perhaps in worship differently. But if you understand Corinth, and this may have been a teaching unique to Corinth, Corinth alone, um, that to take these forms and apply them to the modern context, yeah, you might be true to the forms, but they don't communicate the same meaning because nobody in our culture would say, oh, you have short hair. Uh, you clearly must have committed an adulterous act. We just wouldn't even draw that conclusion. Uh, you have braided hair. You must be like rich. We better tr- you know bring you to the front of the church and sit you at the front. Um, a guy is wearing a hat in church. Uh, he clearly came out of pagan worship. Like we just wouldn't draw those conclusions. So yeah, you stay true to the form, but it it's emptied of meaning because in Windsor, Ontario, unlike first century Corinth, you just have a very different cultural milieu taking place. Um, verses seven to nine. Remind that a woman's role is always seen in relationship to her husband, as per Genesis: 127, and due to the theological purposes of creation. I mention that because uh, in this text, it would be inaccurate and imprecise to say, "Oh, First Corinthians 11 verses two to 10 are cultural." That's not true. There's transcultural stuff in there. But it just seems to us that there's a mixture of cultural and transcultural. And we choose to stay true to the transcultural and allow for flexibility on the stuff that we perceive might be culturally oriented. This is not to say that if a woman... I I don't think it takes place in our church, but it certainly would in no way, shape, or form cause a reaction on my end if a woman in our church felt that... uh, she not only wanted to abide by the transcultural teaching, but she wanted to put expression to that by also abiding by what I would call the cultural teaching of the text. That's fine. I mean, you're you're not like disallowed from wearing a head covering in our church. You're not going to become a third-class citizen. It's not like a bad thing or something. If that's your conviction, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But we're just not going to enforce that uh, any more than we would enforce some of the other expressions of Christian worship. I'll give you two, two other examples that are, I think, analogous. Um, to the principle, serve one another. We believe that, just like all Christians do. We don't think that foot washing is necessarily a relevant modern expression of that because we don't wear sandals, we don't walk around on dusty streets, and something has changed in our culture that would make foot washing probably more of an embarrassing act for people to participate in than an expression of hospitality as per the first century. So the Bible advocates foot washing. We don't practice it, not because we're like, well, we don't like that verse. We actually would say, no, we abide by the principle of the passage without the specific application of it in our culture. Another example of that would be the holy kiss. So some of you may actually come from cultures where there's still the practice of kissing like men kissing each other on the cheek when they meet—that's fine, nothing wrong with that. That was the case in the ancient Near East. So Paul then greeted each other with a holy kiss. This was like he wanted them to show affection to each other. But in our culture, we don't do that. So while we abide by the idea of hospitality or greeting, we we like the handshake or the you know the one-arm man hug or whatever it might be. <clears throat> but we we don't. Typically, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, if I see two you know, Lebanese brothers in the church give each other the whole, I don't really care. But I'm not going to give you one back. Right? So, you know, the,
1: did, uh, the, uh, our culture <coughs> they have
2: yeah. changed in, that. in the old days. Yes. Up north
0: that we did that. Yes, sure. So, uh, uh, road, uh, after, mm-hmm. or For that, sure. We kissed on both cheeks. Yeah. Even in certain, fa- even the family groups in this room, there's probably. We could probably identify several levels of uh, how we would express ourselves physically. Like my mother would not in like a million trillion years kiss me. She just absolutely would refuse to do that. She wouldn't kiss me on the cheek. She wouldn't kiss me on the mouth. Some of you probably get kissed by your mothers all the time. Um, My mother feels very uncomfortable hugging me. My father feels very comfortable hugging me. It's not because my mother's not affectionate. It's just not her thing. Right, and we always tease her about it. Like we give her the hug, and she does the stiff RO. We just do it to bug her now. You know? When I was a kid, I didn't think about it until I saw that your mom's hugging you. What's up with that? That's kind of weird. Um, I thought it was normal, right? So, let's say I come out of that culture, and all of a sudden I get saved and I come to church. You got to hug everybody every Sunday. I might be like, "Whoa, this is not my thing," right? So we're just we're just arguing that. Um, we're not opposed to the transcultural teaching of the text. We just think that there's probably some cultural reasons why that made a lot of sense, and maybe we need to find other ways of expressing that principle in the modern church. Now, verse 10 is one we've got to spend a minute or two on as well, and it, it, it just kind of seems like out of place, um, where it talks about the angels here, okay, because of the angels. Now, um, <coughs> Let me just write the word angels up here in Greek just to really impress you. But, um, so this is the word for angels uh, in Greek. And um, if we were to transfer every one of these letters directly into English, it would look like this. So just say that out loud. Agalos, starting to sound maybe a little familiar. Now, whenever you have a double gamma in Greek, you actually pronounce it N-G. Okay? So let's write it the way it would be pronounced. Angelos. Okay? Drop the nominative ending, and we have the English word angel. Now, this is an example of an English word that has never actually been translated from Greek. It's been transliterated. The difference between translation and transliteration is translation, you come up with a word in a, in a language that has the meaning of this word in it. In transliteration, you just take the letters and you transfer them over to the new language. Another example of that is baptism. It's just basically the Greek word, a few little changes, changed into English letters. So you're like, okay, what does it mean? Because it's a Greek word, it's not even an English word. Now, we've been using the word angel so often, we have a notion of what it means, but there's actually a problem to that. This word in Greek can mean a messenger or a celestial being. Well, this word, when we transliterate it into English, it just means a celestial being, or maybe it's the name of your cat. But generally, it's just a celestial being, right? So. When we see the word angel in the text, we need to understand that it was an interpretive decision on the part of the translator to say, okay, is, this, is the context talking about a messenger or a celestial being? And so they make a call on your behalf and you're stuck with it. They might be right, they might be wrong, right? So in this text, it could very simply be <clears throat> because of the messengers, which might mean visiting preachers. Like, I don't want you to be contentious to other visiting preachers who are coming to your church, delivering the message of God because they come from maybe a city or culture where this is an important thing, so just practice it. It could be that. Or it could be angelic beings. And we don't know a lot about this because there's not a lot of other passages that speak of it, but two things are true. Uh, Other parts of the New Testament indicate that sometimes angels visited churches. How do we know that? It
2: says hospitality.
0: Home, Think of hospitality. The verse in King James there, it says, uh, for
2: this, all uh, the <coughs> uh, women put out power on her head because of the
1: angels. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, but the Greek doesn't uh, give us enough wordage to say that it necessarily has to be celestial beings, it could be messengers. So, in the New Testament, talks about you know, make entertaining angels unawares. So, like, what is that about? Like angels, I got to go to church. I'm going to wrap myself up in human flesh and show up. I got to worship. No, in some ways, like angels are God's ministering servants. That's the simplest definition. But there's also this sense that they like watch over the affairs of god participate in the affairs of god um it's not like that god can't be everywhere at once but there seems to be this idea that perhaps angels do attend churches or sort of like check us out on god's behalf kind of a thing and we know in um, some of the rabbinic teachings of the time, that this was actually taught, that angels could maybe attend the synagogues or participate in the life of the synagogues, and you weren't, be, you weren't necessarily aware of that. So it, it may be that we just don't have enough information on this, but the early church understood that angels participate in some way in our worship. So what, what would that have communicated then to the early church? Like, be on your toes, like, do things properly because God's watching and his messengers are actually there. And further to that, from chapter 6, verse 3, we will judge them one day as well. So the kind of the rules are going to be reversed a little bit. So just make sure you're conducting yourselves properly because one day you're actually going to judge the angels. And that's really the best I can do for you on that one. Like It's just kind of a little opaque. But it's probably something like that going on that is meant to serve the purpose of reminding them that God sees what you do. So pay attention to what you do in worship.
2: Years ago you, uh, you had a conference with uh, there was a man that was a Muslim who turned Christian and he was speaking to us. Mm-hmm. And I bought one of his books or something. In the book it, says, it never says anything
0: Yeah, that's from the Hadiths, which is... uh, That comes from the Hadiths, which are the writings largely ascribed to Muhammad, written by his followers after his death. Now, I'm going to make a comment on that momentarily, but one more thing I wanted to mention is that verses 14 and 15, again, just another interesting thing about Roman and Corinthian men. um, In the early 1st century, uh, men didn't wear their hair long. Roman men did not. Like, you'll see pictures of Caesar Augustus. He's never, you know, sporting a mullet. He The hair is always cut short, right? And all the carvings, it's always short. But the male gods, it's long. It's long. So, because that was the case, <clears throat> um, it may have, been, may have been odd for... Uh, an early Corinthian believer to come, let's say a guy, to come to hair, church with long hair because it would almost been like a, as if you're showcasing, showcasing one of the gods. Of, and even the regular guys in society don't do that. So women always wore their hair long. So again, in the art, it's always long for the Corinthian women and Roman women. So this is probably why it's like, doesn't creation or nature itself show you this? Because that would have been the norm. Awesome question. Yes. It's a great question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so my next point is modern application. It's right on. Did you you sneak up here? Okay. Um, Okay, I'm going to give you three. Um, Number one, all should agree that the principles Paul was trying to guard should be guarded still. Um one of which would be perhaps is there anything in our worship that creates class division? Anything in our worship that creates class division? Like do we is there anything we do that rewards the more wealthy? And if there is, probably got to deal with it. Um <clears throat> number 2, we should all agree with the transcultural Transcultural theology of headship and creation order between men and women, and be okay with that. Um, number three, <clears throat> the debate is really all about the application of those principles, and and the application of that theology. And in um, in Corinth, is it uh, sorry? The debate is whether the application of those principles and that f- theology in Corinth is it accomplished today by practicing what was practiced then? Foot washings, head coverings, holy kiss. The fourth point is, I think this is just an awesome example of how we have to be missional-minded, okay? Our traditions should not be based on what works for us. But how do what we do... I think this is, frankly, a great argument for modern hymnody, I think this is a great example for continually updating the way we dress in church to reflect the norms of society. If society gets more formal, we get more formal. If society gets more casual, we get more casual. I think it's a great example of updating our building and making sure our facilities in some way reflect the norms of culture. I think that, uh, to Jack's comment, if you are a church planter in a Muslim context, all the women wear head coverings in your church because that is culturally appropriate in a former Muslim society. So I can't imagine planting a church in Saudi Arabia and not saying, the Christian women in our church, we all wear hijabs here. Hijabs aren't bad. (laughs) We have this idea that, like, bad. Again, this is where it's like, oh, Muslims are bad because they practice holy war. Read the Old Testament. Like, you got to have a better (laughs) argument than that. (laughs) Muslims are bad because they wear hijabs. Yeah, so what? So did, like, Sarah and Rebecca. Like, much of what the Muslims practice are actually just a carrying over of ancient cultural practices. So, I would say that if you're in a culture where a certain dress style communicates a certain thing, then you go with the culture on it. And if it doesn't communicate it, then you exercise freedom on it. See? Um, this is why the church, in terms of its style, needs to be ever-reforming-ing. You hear that? Like ongoing. We all, we have to be like culturally, cultural missionaries. And I, I view myself probably more as a missionary than a pastor, to be honest. Because I probably spend more time thinking about missional stuff than shepherding people. In that I'm always thinking about, okay, how, how do the... How does the way I use language, I preach, how do we organize a church, uh, structure things, the way we conduct worship, Like, what are the implications of that for the people of God, for a new believer, for an intermediate believer, for a mature... I'm thinking about this stuff like, if not every day, pretty close to every day. And I think we all should be doing that. And I should never hear, I do hear it, because we're like 15 years old now, but I, we should not ever say, well, we've always done it that way. That's not in and of itself a good reason, folks. But I can tell you, I started to hear a little bit of that as soon as I announced, hey, we might be going harvest. Are we going to change our name? Yeah. Like, is there something like sacrosanct and sacred about S-O-U-T-H-W-O-D? Like, like God put those letters together and they're so near and dear to your heart that if you can't say Southwood and you've got to say the word harvest, somehow it's going to rock your world. Like, grow up. Seriously, if we change the order of service, all the offerings now after the sermon, what in the world's going on in this church? Like, really? Um, We have to be so careful because we are all creatures of habit. And we associate so intimately forms of worship with the experience itself to the point that the forms become sacrosanct and the experience ceases to happen. This This has happened... If you don't understand it, you really got to read some church history books. Because it's not, it's not that the forms of worship are wrong, but the, when the form replaces the function of worship, then it's like, wow, like this is, uh, we've lost our form, so we've lost our worship. No, we haven't. But again, we've become such creatures of habit. And then we chastise the Catholics for being creatures <laughs> of habit. It's like, it's ridiculous. I think Protestants are just as much creatures of habit as the Catholics are. They're just different habits. So we, we just have to be very careful about this church that we don't fall into the trap of um, misunderstanding purposes, misunderstanding principles, misunderstanding theology, or understanding it but wetting it so tightly to the precise application that uh, you know, it's like we just can't bear it anymore. I, I, I have had people, you, this may shock you, well, I'll, I'll be a little more accurate. I've had a man walk out of our service when I call people to the front for communion instead of walking the other way. That's too Catholic. <laughs> he now no longer attends our church because he's ticked off at me that on rare occasion I've said, hey, the elders are going to stand at the front We'll hold the bread, and the, you can just come and receive it and return to your seat. That's Catholic. Like, how? How is it Catholic? And if it's Catholic, like, how is it necessarily... Like, is everything the Catholics do wrong? Like, they put one foot before the other. We better walk sideways. <laughs> like, like, everything they do is wrong? Um, you know, they, they pass out biscuits. We better pass out loaves. They meet in buildings with roofs. We better take the roof off, because if it's anything, you know... That's just a ridiculous argument, but the expression is so tightly tied in some people's minds to the the function. They don't even know what the function is anymore. And I just I'm just I get terror I get worked up about that because it terrifies me because that's my that's my sto- that's my like history right. Like I would blame in large part. Uh, the traditionalism of the church that I grew up on, grew up, grew up in on the breakup of my parents' marriage and all of the negative repercussions that flowed into my life from that. Not exclusively, there's some other factors. But I would say a large percentage of it is on the legalism of the church we were in. And it's, it could have destroyed my life. By God's grace, he redeemed me from it. Uh, this is obviously an extreme example of the implications of this. But if our if our forms become more important than the functions and the principles and the theology behind it, then all we are is religious people. And the, the life, life with Christ and life in the Spirit begins to sort of just be eroded. And it doesn't take too many generations before we're just hollowed out.
1: You know?
2: So...
0: Anyhow, I didn't, I, yeah, <laughs> well, there's another reason for that, but you might be back up there once in a while. It relates more to the fact that I, I'm i committed to doing at the 9 o'clock, we do at the 11, and when there's, generally at the 11 o'clock there's just too many people, like there's just too narrow of a strip of space up front to, it would probably work more at a, Nine o'clock service, but that, that's the only reason, but you know, one Sunday, I knew this guy was mad, so I deliberately did not do it whenever he was there. But I didn't see him one Sunday, and I did it, and he walked out. and like, oh, I can't win for losing, but anyway, if he's listening to this, shame on you so, <laughs> Same with us. A lady would sell these hat pins. It had to be this long. You could like skewer a turkey with them and roast it. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to say this. You're, you're supposed to all be cultural missionaries. You watch the Muslim women. They're doing it too. You see this Muslim girl all shapely cruising through the mall. Everything from here down is western. Everything. Tight pants. Tight top. She's wearing the hijab. It's like 15 colors, it's got, what do they call them, sequins? Sequins all in it, makeup all over her face. Like, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't the intention of the writers of the Hadiths. It's supposed to be not to draw attention. It's like modesty. So, but that's, that's the, the brainchild of legalism. You just perform the act, you have no idea why. Sometimes in the performing of the act, you actually violate the function of the act. And now you're like trying to beautify yourself with something that is by definition supposed to not. Like I have much more respect for women that wear the niqab. Like just cover everything up. Just have the little slit. All black. At least they're being consistent with the form and the function they believe to be true. But the slinky Arab girl cruising through the mall with Western clothes on and everything else, like this is not, it's not accomplishing What's supposed to be, you know, what's supposed to be, um, what it's supposed to be accomplishing, and and I know that I'm like I could maybe teach you guys a little bit about your faith and the purposes of it because I know that that because I saw it in my own upbringing like you did right that uh, you know the women with the big the big hat and the feather and it just it became ridiculous like these hats were several hundred dollars by today's today's currency right
1: Uh, yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nancy? When there's been so much war over form,
2: why hasn't somebody pared it down to the principle that every church, wherever, if it's truly really Christian you would buy to and take out all the dissensions? Mm. Why isn't there a core of belief that is non-viable if you are, in fact, Christian? And all this transcultural, cultural, no matter what time it is, there is
0: this core, and if you are adhering to it, who cares how expressive? I mean, probably several reasons. There's no one voice that governs Christianity. Um, another one would be everyone disagrees on what those would or there would be disagreement on what those are. But can't somebody take this and
1: tear it down?
0: Just of like. <laughs> 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 uh, call it the Bible, strip <laughs> down. <Yes>. Strip <laughs> down <The> <laughs> first. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think in part we're trying to do that generationally. I have a passion for just, uh, I don't mean like, I'm not using this word as an equivalent to the word stupid, but I just have a passion for simple church. And I mean, I don't claim to be the brightest guy that ever walked the globe, but I, sometimes I am shocked at the ambiguity among God's people about Christianity 101. Like, Sometimes I'm just like, okay, am I like a genius or something? Because <laughs> I'm seeing this stuff, it's so obvious like, wh- why why is the Church of Jesus Christ across, across our country not seeing this basic stuff? Um, I think the answer to that, of course, is a broad an- the broadest answer is the same reason why the Old Testament people, having encountered these mighty m- movements of God among their midst, fell away. Distractions. Sins of the flesh, sins of the world, demonic attack. And they just allow all this other stuff to come in. Like, I mean, you guys are here, and I'm not saying that you're, you know, necessarily the cream of the crop just for being in this class tonight, but uh, it does indicate that your Christianity and your Christian interest extends beyond Sunday, and I mean, there's other ways to express that, of course, again, you don't just have to be here tonight, but uh, we have a great church, I love the people of this church, but there are still, there's still a pretty big slice of this church that are SMO's. Sunday morning only Christians. They're not thinking about Christianity Monday morning, or Tuesday. It may cross their mind Wednesday. Then forget about it on Thursday. And I know that because I talk to them. I see their virtues. I see their values, or lack thereof. And um, you know, there's there's always a remnant, uh, I believe, among in, in churches, but. Just because you see several hundred people come in here on Sunday morning does not mean there are several hundred followers of Jesus necessarily in this church. Because some people are just guided by a completely different set of virtues and values Monday to Saturday. Some some of which we probably don't even, some of their actions and activities we probably don't even want to be aware of because we get so discouraged. I don't know what we do. but So we're just trying to call people back to the basics. But unfortunately, sometimes you're like, okay, can't we like move on to lesson number two? We're still feeding, like, baby food here. Can't we move to lesson number two? And you go to lesson number two, then you got to come back to lesson number one, right? So there can be some frustration with that, but, you know, at the same time, you can't get too worked up about it because it's always been that way, and ultimately you're responsible for you, and the Spirit's going to do what the Spirit's going to do. And uh, I'm not responsible for other people. Um, so... Uh, you know, while there's some initial discouragement in that, you know, viewed through the eyes of Christian maturity, you just got to keep moving forward and doing our best to serve the Lord and obviously being open to our own stupidity and blind spots in the process. You know, so I'm optimistic. Um, but uh, I, I think the church will look a lot different. I think that there is, uh, you know what, the young people impress me. Not all, but if any older person came up to me, let's just say my age and older, and said, you know what, the church isn't going to survive, look at our young people, I would say, you don't know our young people then. Because I see a lot of bright lights in evangelicalism today that are under 25. And uh, the Lord is working in them. In some ways, they get it a little more than some, o- some of us do. There's like a simplicity, a return to maybe a better understanding of God's justice and basic categories. And, uh, you know, young people today, there's been a resurgence of conservatism among young people on the level of belief, not on the level of method. Okay? This is the very worst church you could be is theologically liberal, and methodologically conservative. That is, like, you're dead in the water. But the growing churches today are theologically conservative and methodologically liberal. And we've been like that from the beginning. Like, liberal in the sense of we're we're open to movement and flexibility and stuff. But, I mean, you can get up and teach hard-hitting sermons on giving and feeding the poor. And... This distinct role relationships between men and women in the authority of scripture and they come back the next week but you, you do all that and break out the pipe organ and the hymn books and suits and ties and you won't see them for months or you put on a big light show and you get up there and just spout fluff and flakiness and uh, inclusivity and all that kind of stuff and you won't see very many under 25 in your church you'll still see the baby boomers there, like in Joel Osteen's church. But you're not going to see the university crowd there for the most part, because they're not interested in that. This is meaningless. So in that respect, I'm optimistic about the future of the church. So, anyway, we need to go. So have a good evening. Thanks for coming.